Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. Sit down, sit down. Listen, I would have been disappointed too. Those of y'all that thought it was going to be Pastor John, I would be disappointed too. I love to listen to him preach, but scripture makes it clear that God uses donkeys and rocks, so we're going to trust that he will do that this morning. The first time Debbie generously invited me to be a part of DFL, I think it was 10 years ago, Deb. Um, I thought she had gotten confused on my last name because I'd already seen the fruit of DFL all over the world. I'd heard about James River for years. And I thought she thought I was Lisa Bevere, not Lisa Harper. Lisa Bevere is an amazing, has she been to DFL? Deb, oh, she can preach the cover off the Bible. She's just extraordinary, she and her husband. But Lisa often preaches in leather pants. And I thought, goodness gracious, if Debbie has gotten me confused and I have to wear leather pants, it's gonna sound like (laughs) ducks are being killed up in the house. And I thought, it's not gonna bless anybody. And so the fact that I got to come once much less that that I have gotten to come several times and just see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living here in Missouri. Just, um, it's an undeserved privilege. If Missouri was a little closer to Tennessee where I live, I would be here every week. I love this house, really, really love this house. Pastor John has taught me so much. I've made mistakes in this house and I found mercy in this house. It is just a gift to be here. So before I get too emotional, gentlemen, I'm so sorry, this is gonna be estrogen festival this morning, but um, would y'all just reach out and touch that saint next to you? And I want you to pray something really, really specific. Would you pray that right now, the Holy Spirit would give them the grace to uncross the arms that they've had crossed over their heart? Just pray God would give them the grace to uncross the arms they have emotionally and mentally had over their heart to be open, to be awed. Jesus, I confess that I am the chief of sinners. You know my heart, you know how often my faith is frail and even in discipline you have been merciful to me. Thank you that when we deserve your wrath, you choose to give us mercy. Thank you that your word says you are slow to anger and rich in compassion. You are so supernaturally compassionate. This weekend at DFL, we all just stood amazed at the women you saved and the women you healed who'd been languishing for decades in brokenness and oppression and you brought them from the dark into the light, and we, we got to see your mercy personified. Thank you, thank you, thank you, King Jesus. We pray this morning that you would open our eyes wider to the miracle of your mercy. Thank you, Jesus, that you are not a faraway God, but you're an up-close, personal redeemer. Help us to remember this morning, I pray for those who don't yet know you, as their savior, who may be even thinking there's no way a perfect God like that could love a a broken man or a damaged woman like me. Lord, I pray even now 
that the Holy Spirit would continue to tender those jaded, uh, hard places in their heart, that their arms really, really would uncross and they'd be open to be awed by your unconditional love this morning. Amen and amen. Um, for those of you Enneagram 1s and Enneagram 8s who take notes, the, the title of today's message is The Anatomy of Awe, but I hardly ever stick with my titles because I'm a little ADD squirrel. And so really probably a more appropriate title would be Confessions of a Yehu because that would be me. Um, um, I think I've made every mistake known to mankind. I have stumbled in my walk toward the Lord. I've been walking with Jesus for over 50 years now. I'm in the latter part of a doctorate, so I can throw just enough Greek and Hebrew around things to sound smart, but reality is most days um, I'm in remedial class because sometimes I feel like my heart and my mind are colanders and the stuff God has poured into me, sometimes it just leaks out because I am so stinking human. And I was at the doctor's not too many years ago. I had to have surgery on my back. My back was broken when I was a kid in a car accident. And I finally had to go in for, I've had a fusion in my lower back and I've got um, a titanium plate in my neck. And, and I really wanted the doctor to like me as much therapy as I've had. I spend most of my shoe money there. I still just wanted my surgeon to like me. I wanted to be a good patient. I can preach grace, but I still want to earn it. Any, anybody in the house kind of understand that? I, mean, I, can, I can talk about the unmerited favor of God, but there's something broken in me that still just wants to be a good girl and somehow earn it. And I wanted to earn my neurosurgeon's favor. And so I thought, I'm going to do everything he tells me to do. I'm going to be a really, really good patient. And I even, right before the surgery, I knew they were going to expose my um, parts of me that should not be exposed. And so I got a temporary tattoo, and it was Bugs Bunny that I put on my on my my lower part and it said what's up doc because I thought that'll be fun you know I thought he'll be tickled when he has to see that part of me that there's a greeting and um and and I'm I mean y'all I grew up half Baptist so I'm super modest I'm a one bathing suit you know single bathing suit kind of girl plus I love chips and queso so that behooves me to stay covered um, but I thought when I'm uncovered for the surgery I just want to you know I want him to like me so I was like what's up doc well after the surgery when I had my follow up visit he said Lisa I have a bone to pick with you and I was like you do and he said I'm I'm actually disappointed in you and I thought goodness gracious, I mean, I've done so well and I did the whole tattoo and everything because um, it stayed on for a while, but Bugs Bunny's head got ripped off by the alcohol, so it was just a headless Bugs Bunny. Um, and I'm not married, so nobody saw it but me. But anyway, um, um, he said, yeah, I'm disappointed. And I said, well, why, Doc? And he said, because when I opened you up, it was much worse than I expected. He said, you told me your pain level was a two on a scale of one to 10. And I said, well, I, you know, I didn't want to be a sissy baby. And he said, your L4 through L5 were completely shredded. He said, you were bone on bone between L4 and L5. And he said, your pain level had to be at a 10. He said, but you told me a two. And do you know what that means to me? And I was like, 
No, sir. I thought I was being a good girl to not complain. And he said, what that communicates to me is you don't trust my capacity as a surgeon very much if you weren't honest about your level of pain. And when he said that, I thought, oh, how often I've done that to the Lord. How often I have unwittingly told God, I don't trust that you can perform a miracle in my life. I, I, I'm going to pretend like it doesn't hurt that bad. You may bring miracles for everybody else who came forward, but I don't think you either care enough or are powerful enough to relieve the pain that has been crippling me. I think one of the consequences of the last year and a half that we've experienced, the crisis after crisis after crisis, bad news after bad news after bad news. If it's not here, it's in the Middle East. If COVID is relieved, it comes back with a vengeance. If it looks like economically we're gonna be able to breathe, all of a sudden there's news of yet another economic crash. And it's like, goodness gracious, I don't want to turn on the TV. I don't want to turn on my phone again. I'm just going to keep my head down and hope that I don't have to hear any more bad news. A very, very, very dear friend of ours committed suicide after the first round of COVID because of the economic devastation. And at that point, I was like, you know, Jesus, I, I'm just worn slap out. I'm just worn slap out. And I'm kind of afraid to hope again. Scripture tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so I thought, if I just don't hope for a miracle, maybe I won't have to walk through the bad news and the disappointment anymore. And I realized what was going on in my heart. I realized part of my heart was getting hardened. I was experiencing awe deprivation. I said, I'm not, I'm not going to hope for a miracle anymore. I'll pray for y'all when y'all come up front, but I'm not so sure. I want to even hope to be healed anymore. And so I went before the Lord and I just confessed it. I said, Lord, I am, I am kind of scared in my heart. I just feel like I've been disappointed so many times. I'm just kind of scared to hold my hand up for a miracle. And through his spirit, I've never heard an audible voice of the Lord, but John's gospel tells us he speaks clearly. If you've given your heart to Jesus, he will speak very clear to you. You'll understand his voice. Isaiah says he's so kind that he even gives us specific directions. He'll tell us when to turn left. He'll tell us when to turn right. And so I said, Lord, I just, I need something fresh because I'm losing hope. I don't even feel like I, I have the recipe for a miracle anymore. I feel like I just have empty hands. And I came before him and he said, I want you to go to Luke 1. And I went, oh, I wasn't very clear. I don't need Christmas. This was April. And I thought, I've already heard Mariah singing in the mall. Like I've already, I've already done that. I, I don't need Christmas, Lord. I kind of need Easter. I need a resurrection because I feel like my hope is dead or at least dying. I need Easter. And he said, no, I want you to go back to Luke 1. Y'all have heard this story before. Luke chapter 1. When the... In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joe of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and she was about 12, according to New Testament scholars. And a giant nine-foot glowing angel came to her and said, Greetings, 
oh favorite. Don't you just know angels talk like James Earl Jones? <laughs> I mean, there's no way you've got a nine foot glowing supernatural being and they're a tenor. There's just no way. So I just think Gabriel had like this or like the guy on the Allstate commercial. She's just a deep resonant voice. And she's 12, she's in the seventh grade. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And Mary goes, okay. And her friends are, you know, they're doing live Facebook because they're like, nobody's gonna believe this. Like this huge guy just zoomed down from heaven and he's talking to our seventh grade friend, telling her she's gonna be the mother of Emmanuel. And Mary goes, how, how, how will this be? I haven't gone to prom yet. I mean, I've never even held hands with a boy, Gabe. How will this be? One of my favorite theologians, this one's living. I have platonic crushes on all the dead guys. Um, but Sinclair Ferguson is a Scottish theologian, and he says this, being amazed by God's grace is a sign of spiritual vitality. It is a litmus test of how firm and real is our grasp of the Christian gospel and how close our walk with Jesus is. How amazed are you this season? Maybe more aptly, how open to being amazed are you? Mary was like, there's no stinking way. I mean, goodness gracious, God, I'm in the seventh grade. I'm 12 years old. How in the world could I be the mother of the Messiah? God isn't interested, Mary, in your fertility. He's interested in your faith. You can come before him with empty hands. You can come before him with a heart that goes, I don't know how in the world this is going to happen. And that Epicomai miracle didn't just take place at Christmas. We see that exact same term again at Pentecost. Flip over about a half an inch to the book of Acts. Dr. Luke wrote the gospel according to Luke, and I'm sure as Pastor John has told you, he also wrote the Acts of the Apostles. Luke is the only non-Gentile author of Holy Writ. There are a couple of books in the 66 books of our Protestant Bibles that are formally classified as anonymous. We don't know definitively who the author was, but the only known non-Jewish author of Holy Writ is Dr. Luke. And he wrote the gospel according to Luke, the euangelion, that's the word gospel, it means the good news. He wrote the gospel according to Luke. And then in the same document, he wrote the Acts of the Apostles. When they canonized scripture, that's just a fancy word that means when they collated all 66 books, they inserted the gospel according to John after the gospel according to Luke. But I would encourage those of you saints who read through the Bible in a year chronologically, skip over John when you get to the end of Luke's gospel, come back for John later, but go straight from the end of Luke to the beginning of Acts, because it's this incredible seamless story of redemption. So Luke tells us about Mary, and then he tells us the incarnate earthly life of Jesus Christ, the miracles, then he goes, and let me tell you what happened next. 
And he describes how after Jesus laid down his life for us and was resurrected because he loves us so much and he knows most of us are yahoos, instead of shazamming immediately to the right hand of God the Father, he spent over a month in his resurrected body right here on this broken planet called Earth. And he walked around in his incarnate body and he ate fish and chips so that Peter, he had just thrown Jesus under the bus a week and a half earlier. He could appear with Peter and have breakfast and go, Pete, it's me. So that Thomas, who was a brainiac, so that he go, Thomas, when Thomas said, I'm not so sure you're the Christ. And he said, Tom, touch the nail prints in my wrist. Here's where they drove the stakes. Touch them. It's me. How kind of God that he condescends to reveal himself to us in a way we can understand. He could just write things in the sky in a galaxy that we couldn't see, but he makes himself accessible. How amazing is that? He's holy, he's transcendent, he is perfect, but he condescends and says, come closer, you can touch my wrist. So he was here for over a month, appearing to people, going, no, it really is me. I really did experience a bodily resurrection. And then after about a month, his followers, and at that time there were only 100, 100-ish, 110, they gathered on a hill at the edge of Jerusalem, and he stood in front of them, and he said, I'm going to be with the Father. I've left you spirit, Holy Spirit, who's your paraclete, your comforter, he reminded some of y'all, even this morning, you have the right to call the God of the universe, Dad. I'm leaving you spirit. I'm not leaving you as orphans. And he said, you will receive power, whether you're Presbyterian or Pentecostal, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, epicomai, same exact word from Christmas we see at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, epicomai you, and when he does, you'll be catapulted from this place all over the world to share the gospel. In Judea and Samaria and Ozark, you will share the hope of the gospel. That's the power you'll have. This is a motley crew. Most of his followers were Amherts. That means people of the earth. That means they were illiterate. They were not formally educated. And he comes upon them in power, epicomize them, just like he did this 12-year-old who gave birth to the Christ. He epicomize them, and the Holy Spirit starts shooting pyrotechnics from their head. I mean, more incredible than what we saw at DFL on Thursday night. Choo! Shooting flames of fire. That's why Baptists are afraid of the Holy Spirit. It's like, that will be an awkward dinner party. I mean, you see these tangible expressions of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. Then they have this feast called Pentecost. Pentecost was formerly a festival where they celebrated harvest that God was providing for them, taking care of them. By the first century, Pentecost had kind of morphed into a huge global festival for the Jews where they celebrated that God brought his word to Moses on Mount Sinai. So it is a global celebration. It's like the World Cup or the Super Bowl or the semi-annual shoe sale at Nordstrom's. It's a big deal. 
So Jews come from all over the diaspora. That's just a fancy word that means where they lived apart from geopolitical Israel. They come from Turkey. They come from Africa. They come from all over. According to Luke, there were at least 15 different nations represented at this Pentecost, this festival in Acts chapter 2. That means there were at least 15 different languages spoken. The Holy Spirit comes down and there's pyrotechnics. And then those early believers who were not educated began to speak in the languages of the people gathered in their known tongue. It's called xenolalia. There's several different kinds of tongues in scripture and Pastor John can clarify this in a way I can't. But in Acts 2, the tongues spoken were xenolalia. That means that an uneducated guy who only spoke Aramaic all of a sudden was speaking in the language of someone from Africa. Hadn't done the, whatever it is called, the Rosario Stone or whatever that program is to learn another language. Didn't have anything on his iPhone. Had not been to school to study that language. Just shazam. He began speaking the gospel in a way that it was clear. It had been chaotic. Can you imagine if we were in service this morning and all of us were given our testimonies and we had 15 different languages representing and you'd probably be polite as long as service didn't go too long and you weren't late for Denny's or wherever y'all are going, Olive Garden, if you're on a cheap date. That happens to me all the time with eHarmony. But anyway, you'd be like, hmm, well, isn't that pleasant? But you couldn't understand them if they're speaking something other than Southern English. You, you couldn't understand them unless few of you are bilingual. But this is 15 different languages. And these early Christians went, I, I don't know how that happened. I got nothing. I had nothing. I've never been trained. And all of a sudden I started talking about Jesus in Sudanese. I don't know how that happened. When I was in the process of adopting my daughter, Missy, from Haiti, I met a girl named Megan Boudreau. And we were hiking up this hill because I wanted to see a school that God had built through her. She was a kid. When I met her, she was 24 years old, had been a believer for four years came to Christ in college, was not raised in a Christian home, had no James River kids, had no DFL, had no pyrotechnics, just came to Christ in a Bible study when she was a junior in college. And because she met Jesus, he transformed her mind and her heart. And after she graduated with a degree in international business, she had a great job, made a lot of money for a year. And then she heard God, she'd only been a believer for a year and a half, heard God say, I want you to go to Haiti and share the gospel in Haiti. Now, most of us would hear something like that and we'd go, I need to take that back to my small group <laughs> and my counselor and have it exegeted and marinate in this for a while to make sure I'm hearing the voice of God and walking correctly. It's funny how sometimes mature faith can actually get really jaded and we can call things, well, this is me being mature. And I'm like, no, that's you being awe deprived. You don't believe anymore that God can speak clearly one time. I want you to do this. I love that Eugene Peterson says obedience is a long walk in the same direction. He says, go and you go, yes, sir. 
You, you don't need to see around the corner of your circumstances. You just say, he said, go. So I went. And that's what Megan did. No mission board behind her. No financial support behind her. She took her savings, got on a plane, and went to Haiti. Cheerleader in college, moves to Haiti, doesn't speak the language, can't find a place to live, eventually finds a shack with no running water and no electricity. And she was like, well, God told me to be here. She realized pretty quickly she didn't have an affinity for, for the language, didn't have an affinity to Creole. So she was having a hard time getting around. And so she was so disappointed that the miracle wasn't happening quickly that she found a hill near her shack and she began hiking to the top of that hill in a little rural village called Gressier in Haiti, for those of you who've been there, because from the top of that hill, she could see the Caribbean. And she grew up in New Orleans and water reminded her of home. And so she would hike to the top of that hill and look at the Caribbean and she would just go, God, help me. I thought you told me to come here and I'm seeing nothing happen, but I'm just going to keep looking at that water and believing since you breathe that water into existence, you're going to breathe a miracle here. I just don't see how it's going to happen. She noticed after a couple of hikes that there were dead, dead cats hanging in the tree on top of that hill. She would hike daily. She didn't know then that high hills in Haiti are often used by voodoo priests for worship. And that's why the dead cats were hanging in the tree. She had no idea that God would use her and the top of that hill would eventually turn into a Christian school and a hospital where hundreds have been healed and come to Christ. She had no idea as a 21-year-old that God was going to do that. She just hiked that hill in the heat every single day. And one day she was hiking that hill and halfway up, she saw two beautiful little girls on the side of the trail, about six and four. We don't snow still how old they were because they were Restavix child slaves. So nobody bothered with a birth certificate, much less birthday parties. Both were bloody. Both looked like they were just absolutely desolate and desperate. And so Megan stopped and she squatted down and in just the little bit of Creole she knew, she said, are you okay? And because she could say three words in Creole, those little girls assumed she could speak Creole. And in a torrent of Creole, they began to weep and travail and tell her how they'd been beaten, what had happened to them. She didn't understand a word of it. And as these kids, obviously in distress, one just barely out of being a baby, were just begging her for help, Megan began to cry out to God. And she said, you told me to come here. I know I heard your voice. And I know you told me to come here. And I sacrificed God to come here. And now there's these two precious pumpkins that I can't help because I can't understand them. I can't understand a word they're saying and they're bloody and they're in distress. How can I help them, God? You didn't even give me the language. Will you help me? Shazam. She could speak Creole. She could understand Creole. She could write Creole. Never went to language school. And I said, Megan, I'm having a hard time picking up Creole. I've got it on my app and I'm having a hard time communicating with Missy, my daughter, because I don't speak her language. <clears throat> how did you learn Creole? And I thought she was going to give me an app or I thought she was going to tell me a language school I could go to and learn it really quick. And she went, oh, that's a funny story. 24 years old, been a Christian for five years. She's just talking to me as we're hiking up this hill in the heat. And she went, oh, God gave me Creole. And she told me the story. And then she told me those two little girls on the, on the side of the trail are now my daughters. 
She adopted two kids as a 24-year-old kid herself. They're her daughters. They're doing amazing. And she said, God gave me Creole. And I said, do you know you experienced Pentecost on this mountain? And she goes, you know, I never really thought about it that way. She said, we've been so busy and he's just been doing so much. I was just so grateful he gave me Creole when I needed it. Out of absolute confusion and chaos, God brought clarity. She didn't bring anything to the table, no app, no language school, and he gave her Creole. That's what he did in Acts 2. Sometimes we get so preoccupied with the denominational divisions that have happened as a result of how we understand Acts 2 that we miss the miracle. The gospel was shared in different languages. A 12-year-old carried Christ out of nothing, out of nothing, he breathed vibrancy out of void. And yet we still think, I got nothing, Jesus. There's no way you can give me a miracle. My hands are empty. Ah, oh, deprivation is what we see all over America right now. I'm just afraid to hope. How could he do it? There's no way he could breathe a miracle out of these circumstances. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. I know y'all know this prophecy because I know this house. I know y'all believe this better than I believed it. I have never loved this prophecy more than I did this past Easter because this past Easter I was diagnosed with COVID and because I've already told you I'm a yahoo and a stubborn old broad, I wouldn't go to the hospital. And by the time I was hospitalized, I had a virulent form of pneumonia that had caused what they call broken glass syndrome in my lungs. And so the congestion in my lungs had hardened and it was shredding my lungs. And so initially the doctors didn't have a whole lot of hope in my survival for, for a couple of days. They could not um, stabilize me. And, and it looked like I meet, might meet Jesus a little sooner than, than I planned. And, um, and the second day I was in the hospital, I had my Bible with me and I turned to Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. And God said to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord God, you know. I love his honesty there. I love that he didn't quote some amazing Chris Tomlin or Hillsong lyric. I love that he didn't raise his hands. I love that there are no pyrotechnics. He was just honest. He said, I don't know, Lord. I don't know, I feel like my hands are empty. I'm afraid to hope. I don't know, you know, Lord. Some of y'all long to be healed, but you didn't walk forward this morning because you're just kind of afraid to hope again. There's been so much disappointment, so much bad news that you don't want to tell the physician how much you really hurt because you're afraid he might not choose to heal you. I don't know, Lord. I don't know if the bones can live. You, you know. Then God said to Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, 
to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So I prophesied as I was commanded. If you are physically able, you need to get your tiny tail in church every time the doors are open. We've gotten in the habit of watching church from our couches and neither Pastor Debbie or Pastor John or Brandon or David or Savannah told me to say this. This is free. This is all me. It's not enough to sit on your couch and Zoom church. Now, if you have a comorbidity, if you're sick, if you're older, I get it. There is grace for that. But those of you who are able-bodied, who've just gotten used to wearing your stretchy pants and Zooming for church, it's not enough for your soul. It's not. The author of Hebrews says, don't give up gathering together. Do you know this is the first Sunday in a year and a half that y'all been able to sit in every row? Do you know what a miracle that is to gather together in the house of God? Ezekiel had nothing. His hands were empty, but he remembered what God said. That's why we come together. Church isn't a country club. It's more a hospital. It's a place where all of us are in different stages of sickness, needing to be made well, telling each other, let me help you limp toward Jesus and remember what the Lord God has spoken over us, what he said, the healings we've already seen, the salvations we've already seen. He said, I'll say what you say, God. I'll prophesy what you say, God. And sinews appeared on the bones, but there was no breath in them. There was no breath in them. After I was in the hospital for three days, my doctor, really amazing pulmonologist, came into my room and he said, Lisa, I just found out from one of the nurses what you do vocationally. I found out that you travel around the country and you, you teach the Bible, you preach for a living. And he said, I hate to be the one to tell you this, um, but I don't want to give you false hope. He said, your lungs have been so shredded, so eviscerated by this wicked, cruel disease, you will not be able to preach again. He said, your lungs have been so, so compromised. He said, it's a miracle you're alive. You will be on residual oxygen for the rest of your life. You will walk with a tank behind you and you will never be able to speak more than two or three minutes because your lungs won't be able to hold that much air. This was April. This was Easter. You won't be able to hold that much air. He's a good man. He's a really, really good doctor. I love medical professionals. My daughter has HIV. It's by the grace of God and good medicine that my daughter's undetectable. So those of you who are in the medical community, thank you, thank you, thank you, especially this season. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that you show up and you care and you serve. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, but you're not the great physician. And so I told my doctor, I said, doctor, thank you so much for saving my life. I will bring you chocolate for the rest of your life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I said, but doc, with all due respect, you don't actually have the right to tell me if I'll breathe and preach again in the future. I said, doctor, do you remember what the word in the Greek is for Holy Spirit. My doctor's a believer. I said, do you remember what the word is for Holy Spirit in the New Testament, the Greek word? And he kind of looked at me like I had three heads and I said, it's pneuma. 
It means breath. I said, so as much as I respect you, only my creator redeemer has the right to say if I'll have breath in my future. He's the only one who can prophesy breath after Ezekiel didn't yet see the miracle. God said to him, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy. Prophesy, son of man, even though you don't see it, even though you're afraid to hope again, even though you wonder if you'll ever see a miracle in your life, you prophesy to the breath. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet. An exceedingly great army. I got nothing. I wouldn't even walk forward. A few minutes ago when Brandon welcomed us so warmly because I'm afraid to hope again. I've got nothing. Vibrancy out of void. Pure light out of pitch black. A sanctuary out of a cemetery. God does not need your potential. He's not looking for your fertility. He's looking for a thimble full of faith for you to stand up again and go, I can't see it. I have no idea how you're gonna do it. I feel stupid even standing up, but I'm gonna prophesy what you told me. I'm gonna prophesy for breath. I'm gonna believe for a miracle again.